0: This is the Dallamore Daily, and I'm Jesse Dallamore. To be president means to have a lot on your plate, a lot of responsibility. The health and welfare of almost 350 million Americans. It means the defense, providing for the common Trump, it's Dixon White here, sending a video letter directly to you, sir. And the only reason I call you sir is because the office that you hold is supposed to be a respectable office. But so I just want to speak directly to you, Mr. Trump. I know you may never get this video. Maybe you will, though, because at least I have white skin like you. But. First, I wanted to applaud you for one thing and only one thing um, many racists in politics are very covert, so I applaud you for being an open racist, and I applaud you for at least letting us see just how racist you are and it's now it's it's well established worldwide that you are a bona fide white supremacist um there's not a nation that hasn't condemned you as a racist. So you have dishonored and disgraced one of the, the highest office offices in the land. But I wanted to say one thing. You made a comment yesterday about shithole countries, poor, black, brown countries. So because they're poor, because they're black and brown and not white or European, you consider them shitholes. Well, I wanted to give you an accurate definition of a shithole nation. A shithole nation, by definition, would be a nation like America that allows and tolerates a racist to operate in their highest office, the presidency. That is a shithole nation. nation that tolerates a racist president. There is no worse pile of shit or turd in the toilet out of all the other countries than a great nation like America that allows its president to be an open white supremacist and then to allow them to continue to function as president. That's the biggest turd in the pot, or as you say, the biggest shithole. Why? Because you, Mr. Trump, are the shit, the turd, in the White House that's staining and putting a foul odor all over our nation. And, of course, the only reason you're there is because you're a racist. You're a complete and utter idiot with no competency Whatsoever to be where you're at. The only reason you're there is because we had a black president and our racist nation wanted a racist president after a black president. So until America can get past its racism, which I don't know if it ever has, because there's one thing about black folks, Mr. Trump, black folks have always understood one thing. The more things change in this country, the more they stay the same you are living proof that any white person no matter how racist they are and matter of fact racism is actually more of a compliment in this nation it's like apple pie racism in America they go hand-in-hand if you're a white American you're racist and you've and you've proven that and not only you're racist if you're a racist You get rewarded for being a racist in this country. Why? Because we are a racist organization called America. Fact. And nothing has changed. In 400 years, what has really changed? We're still seeing black and brown folks executed in the street. Not that you and Jeff Sessions or any of your racist motherfucking cabinet care. You don't give a fuck about justice for people of color. You're all a group of white nationalists. So I just want to tell you, Here's one white guy, and I'm telling you personally, Donald Trump, kiss my white fat ass. I hate you, Donald Trump. I literally hate you. And I pray to God you get impeached. You're an embarrassment to our nation and upon the world. Please do us all favor and resign. The only people that want you in office are more racist. And yes, I know that our country, the majority of white people are racist. And the majority of white people comp- totally and completely support you. I really believe that. Because if they're not supporting you, then they're silently ignoring your racism. But anyhow, please do us all a favor. in Congress, please act to remove this racist motherfucker and his racist administration, or Congress is no better. Please remove this racist motherfucker. From office. It's 2018, guys. And if we can't remove this racist motherfucker from office, America is no better than it was 400 years ago.
1: called me, I mean, body down so don't worry be happy don't worry be happy now don't worry be happy don't worry be happy
2: don't
1: worry Don't worry, be happy Don't worry, don't worry, don't do it Be happy Put a smile on your face Don't bring everybody down to make you. Don't worry It will soon pass, whatever it is Don't worry, be happy
3: Because I think you have a right to know why I've taken the actions that I've taken. You have a right to the truth as difficult as it may be to hear, because you can bear it. Over the last few weeks, I've reached out to and relied upon some of the best medical experts, epidemiologists, mathematicians, and modelers to help me understand what the progression of this disease will look like in Illinois. My bedrock has been to rely upon science, real, actual science around infection rates, and potential mortalities. In my discussions with these experts, I've asked for honesty and hard truths. I asked that choices and consequences of those choices be laid out for me as clearly and starkly as possible. I've asked every one of these experts, what action can I take to save the most lives? Well, they've come back to me with one inescapable conclusion. To avoid the loss of potentially tens of thousands of lives, we must enact an immediate stay-at-home order for the state of Illinois. So that is the action that I am announcing today. We have looked closely at the trajectory of this virus in countries like Italy and China. Left unchecked, cases in Illinois will rise rapidly. Hospital systems will be overwhelmed. Protective equipment will become scarce and we will not have enough healthcare workers or hospital beds or ventilators for the overwhelming influx of sick patients. The only strategy available to us to limit the increase in cases and ensure our healthcare system has capacity to treat those who become ill is to mitigate the spread of coronavirus in the most robust manner possible. I don't come to this decision easily. I fully recognize that in some cases I am choosing between saving people's lives and saving people's livelihoods. But ultimately you can't have a livelihood if you don't have your life. Of all the obligations that weigh on me as governor, this is the greatest. If there are actions that I can take that will save lives in the midst of this pandemic, no matter how difficult then I have an obligation to take these actions therefore starting tomorrow evening Saturday March 21st at 5 p.m. until the end of April 7th all our residents will be subject to a stay at home order there is a great deal of misunderstanding about what a stay at home order means so I want to clarify it for everybody Here's what will stay the same. You'll still be able to leave your house to go to the grocery store to get food. You'll still be able to visit a pharmacy, go to a medical office or hospital or to gas up your car at a gas station. You'll still be able to go running and hiking and walk your dog. Many many people will still go to work. For the vast majority of you already taking precautions, your lives will not change very much. There is absolutely no need to rush out to a grocery store or gas station. On Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and every day thereafter, those will be available to you. Agriculture and the press, veterinarians and plumbers, laundromats and banks, roads, bridges and transit, the fundamental building blocks that keep our society safe and steady will not be closing down. You can still pick up dinner from your local restaurant, pick up your prescriptions, and just spend time with your family. We are doing all that we can to maintain as much normalcy as possible while taking the steps that we must to protect you. That brings me to what will change. All non essential businesses must stop operating. If you can work from home and aren't already doing so, now is the time when you must. The heroes of this moment are healthcare workers, first responders, law enforcement officers, and the individuals and organizations like the Illinois AFL-CIO and other workers who keep our grocery stores and pharmacies running cannot stay home. We need you. This executive order is fundamentally about the rest of us. And what we can do to support the people on the front lines of this fight and the people most vulnerable to its consequences we know this will be hard and we're looking at every tool that we have to help you through this crisis for our essential workers we're going to make sure you have safe daycare to take care of your children while you do the critical work to save us and to keep us safe For those who are asking to stay home, we're ordering municipalities, sorry, to those that we are asking to stay home, we're ordering municipalities across the state to halt all evictions. We need our local leaders to help ensure our families do not lose their homes. I'm also directing additional resources to organizations across the state to serve those experiencing homelessness. For our students, your school districts will continue to provide you with meals, and we will back them up in this. I wish I could stand up here and tell you when your schools will safely reopen, but that is not an answer that I have at this time. We're postponing our tentative reopening date statewide until April 8th, and we'll continue to update you with new information as we have it. To be honest, we don't have the resources, the capacity, or the desire to police every individual's behavior. Enforcement comes in many forms, and our first and best option is to rely on Illinoisans to be good members of their communities and good citizens, working together to keep each other safe. I've instructed law enforcement to monitor for violations and take action when necessary, but that is not an option that anyone prefers. The easy thing to say today is that soon everything will go back to the way it was. But I want to be honest with you about that, too. We don't know yet all the steps we are going to have to take to get this virus under control. But here's what I do know. About 150 years ago, the city of Chicago burned to the ground. When the ashes cleared, we passed laws requiring buildings be built with fireproof material. We invented skyscrapers. Chicago went from a small Midwest town to one of the biggest cities in the United States. And just to make a point, we built the Chicago Fire Academy on the very spot where the Great Chicago Fire started burning. In the coming days and weeks, we're going to expand testing in Illinois to figure out how to detect COVID-19 more quickly and more efficiently. Our scientists and our doctors are working on treatments even now. They will screen people more effectively, isolate them more quickly, and attack this more efficiently. They're going to learn, and as they learn, they're going to innovate. They're already on a path to develop a vaccine. Our healthcare infrastructure will adapt because it must. This will not last forever. However, it's going to force us to change, but that's okay. Any event of this magnitude should force us to change. We here in Illinois have overcome obstacles before, and we'll do so again. And we will rise to this occasion. Thank you. And now I'd like to introduce the mayor of the city of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot.
4: Thank you, Governor. I have to say again. Not only thank you for um, your partnership, but your leadership in this incredible time. I've heard from people all over the country um, that they feel that Illinois is in good hands because of your leadership. So thank you very much. Uh, as the governor just announced, um, he is issuing a stay-at-home order. And I hope you think of it that way. Uh, this is clearly not a decision that was made lightly, um, nor by any one person. And I echo the Governor's statement, these are not our only difficult choices to be made, um, but they are choices that must be made for the good of all of our residents. The Governor, local leaders, and I are in full agreement that we need to act swiftly, and this decision is necessary. As the Governor alluded to, we have seen what bold measures have yielded in places like Japan and Singapore and South Korea. And sadly, We are witnessing what is not happening around the world in countries that did not mobilize. The coronavirus will not go away by happenstance. We must be intentional about taking steps to flatten the curve. Today's announcement, along with other steps taken in the last two weeks, are intended to do just that. We can only save lives and blunt the spread of this virus by keeping as many people as practical at home and safe. And I want to talk specifically about what this will mean for Chicago. Our city, um, in the absence of leadership from the federal government, frankly, is doing the following. Finalizing, securing quarantine and isolation locations. Bolstering hospital capacity. Supporting our health care workers and first responders and doing everything possible to relieve the pressure on them. And building a supply chain to make sure that critical equipment to the healthcare system. Things like ventilators, PPEs, and other important supplies are available and given to areas of need. We will continue to identify residents who are sick and ensure they receive the treatment and resources they so rightfully deserve and put them on a path to recovery as has happened already with many. Our healthcare workers have been at the forefront of this pandemic. They are working around the clock and putting their own health on the line to keep those who need it most. That means we as a city must do everything we can to help them. Now is not the time for half measures, but preventative and proactive plans ones rooted in science and data and to mitigate the spread and ultimately to save lives. And let's be clear, this has to be a two-way street. While the responsibility of our government is to build a plan Your personal responsibility is to take all necessary precautions to keep yourself safe, and formally include uh, in order to stay at home. I know that we are asking a lot of residents and to make enormous sacrifices. I also understand um, that these times can be uh, causing anxiety. And again, think of this as safer at home. But here's the reality we've issued common sense public health guidance. This is our announcement today is the next step in that progression. So many Chicagoans have already heeded our calls to stay home and are practicing social distancing. <clears throat> for those residents, today's announcement won't drastically change the day-to-day changes you've already taken. But while many have listened, some have not. And it's clear that the time is now for us to be very definitive telling people that you must stay home. The governor already explained um, what this order is and what it requires from each of us. And I want to say and be clear, this is not a lockdown or martial law. As the governor said, and I want to reiterate, Chicago's grocery stores, pharmacies, and clinics will remain open. And there's absolutely no need to change your normal purchasing patterns. What I mean is, do not take this direction as a reason to run to the stores, buy everything in sight, and hoard vital supplies. Please, the grocery stores will remain open and stocked, so be mindful of your neighbors and do not hoard supplies. Hospitals will continue to treat patients. The city's essential services will not cease. The CTA will run, airports will be open, and your garbage will be collected and yes, you can still go outside for a walk, but practice social distancing. Remember, this is the new normal for now. I think and I hope people recognize and understand that these decisions are being made for the long-term health of everybody everywhere in our entire state. Let me remind you that uh, some helpful resources that you can access to stay informed during this crisis. For Chicago, the best and most up-to-date information is the public health website, chicago.gov forward slash coronavirus. And if you'd like to get text alerts, text COVID-19, that's C-O-V-I-D-19, to 78015. That's COVID-19 to 78015. And every day at 11 a.m., Monday through Sunday, Dr. Already's daily conversation session is being held. The doctor is in, and it is carried on Facebook Live. I also want to announce in light of this order, we will be closing fully Chicago parks and libraries for the duration of this order. Some of these facilities may be repurposed to help support some other essential services by third parties, but effective tomorrow at 5 p.m., all city parks and libraries will be closed. This is a make-or-break moment for our city and our state. Never in our lifetime has our own health been so intertwined with the health of every single person with whom we interact. Neighbors, coworkers, loved ones, frontline workers, please realize your responsibility to them and continue to take care of yourself. Now, as I said recently, while this is a period of physical isolation, we should remain in contact with our families, friends and neighbors. Please call and check in with seniors, people who are vulnerable. We have disrupted normal social networks and interactions, but it is critically important that we not lose our sense of community. This is not a time for every man for himself. This is a time for every man, woman and child to be united together. The choices we make today can renew and restore health and prosperity in Chicago and throughout Illinois. It is time to do more to flatten the curve and build our pathway to the other side. I have faith in Chicago's resolve and resiliency to help us get there. Thank you very much. Governor.
3: Thank you, Mayor, very much for your remarks, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, I uh, have over time been relying upon The George Wilder Jr. Show is now on the air You are-
2: You are my
5: Today, to talk about a disturbing question which has an equally disturbing answer. My topic is the secrets of domestic violence. And the question I'm going to tackle is the one question everyone always asks Why does she stay? Why would anyone stay with a man who beats her? I'm not a psychiatrist, a social worker, or an expert in domestic violence. I'm just one woman with a story to tell. I was 22. I had just graduated from Harvard College. I'd moved to New York City for my first job as a writer and editor at Seventeen Magazine. I had my first apartment, my first little green American Express card, and I had a very big secret. My secret was that I had this gun loaded with hollow-point bullets pointed at my head by the man who I thought was my soulmate many, many times. The man who I loved, more than anybody on earth, held a gun to my head and threatened to kill me more times than I can even remember. I'm here to tell you the story of crazy love, a psychological trap disguised as love, one that millions of women and even a few men fall into every year. It may even be your story. I don't look like a typical domestic violence survivor, I have a BA in English from Harvard College, an MBA in Marketing from Wharton Business School. I spent most of my career working for Fortune 500 companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Leo Burnett, and The Washington Post. I've been married for almost 20 years to my second husband, and we have three kids together. My dog is a black lab, and I drive a Honda Odyssey minivan. (laughs) So my first message for you is that domestic violence happens to everyone. All races, all religions, all income and education levels. It's everywhere. And my second message is that everyone thinks domestic violence happens to women, that it's a women's issue. Not exactly. Over 85% of abusers are men. And domestic abuse happens only in intimate, interdependent, long-term relationships. In other words, in families the last place we would want or expect to find violence, which is one reason domestic abuse is so confusing. I would have told you myself that I was the last person on earth who would stay with a man who beats me, but in fact, I was a very typical victim because of my age. I was 22, and in the United States, women ages 16 to 24 are three times as likely to be domestic violence victims as women of other ages. And over 500 women and girls this age are killed every year by abusive partners, boyfriends, and husbands in the United States. I was also a very typical victim because I knew nothing about domestic violence, its warning signs or its patterns. I met Connor on a cold, rainy January night. He sat next to me on the New York City subway, and he started chatting me up. He told me two things. One was that he too had just graduated from an Ivy League school, and that he worked at a very impressive Wall Street bank. But what made the biggest impression on me that first meeting was that he was smart and funny, and he looked like a farm boy. He had these big cheeks, these big apple cheeks, and this wheat blonde hair, and he seemed so sweet. One of the smartest things Connor did from the very beginning was to create the illusion that I was the dominant partner in the relationship. He did this, especially at the beginning, by idolizing me. We started dating, and he loved everything about me, that I was smart, that I'd gone to Harvard, that I was passionate about helping teenage girls and my job. He wanted to know everything about my family and my childhood, my hopes and dreams. Connor believed in me as a writer and a woman in a way that no one else ever had and he also created a magical atmosphere of trust between us by confessing his secret which was that as a very young boy starting at age four he had been savagely and repeatedly physically abused by his stepfather and the abuse had gotten so bad that he had had to drop out of school in eighth grade even though he was very smart and he would spent almost twenty years rebuilding his life which is why That Ivy League degree and the Wall Street job and his bright, shiny future meant so much to him. If you had told me that this smart, funny, sensitive man who adored me would one day dictate whether or not I wore makeup, how short my skirts were, where I lived, what jobs I took, who my friends were, and where I spent Christmas, I would have laughed at you because there was not a hint of violence or control or anger in Connor at the beginning. I didn't know that the first stage in any domestic violence relationship is to seduce and charm the victim. I also didn't know that the second step is to isolate the victim. Now, Connor did not come home one day and announce, "You know, hey, this, all this Romeo and Juliet stuff has been great, but I need to move into the next phase where I isolate you and I abuse you. (laughs) So I need to get you out of this apartment where the neighbors can hear you scream and out of this city where you have friends and family and co-workers who can see the bruises. Instead, Connor came home one Friday evening, and he told me that he had quit his job that day, his dream job. And he said that he had quit his job because of me, because I had made him feel so safe and loved that he didn't need to prove himself on Wall Street anymore. And he just wanted to get out of the city and away from his abusive, dysfunctional family and move to a tiny town in New England where he could start his life over with me by his side. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was leave New York and my, my dream job. But I thought you made sacrifices for your soulmate. So I agreed. And I quit my job, and Connor and I left Manhattan together. I had no idea I was falling into crazy love, that I was walking headfirst into a carefully laid physical, financial, and psychological trap. The next step in the domestic violence pattern is to introduce the threat of violence and see how she reacts. And here's where those guns come in. As soon as we moved to New England, you know, that place where Connor was supposed to feel so safe? He bought three guns. He kept one in the glove compartment of our car. He kept one under the pillows on our bed. And the third one he kept in his pocket at all times. And he said that he needed those guns because of the trauma he'd experienced as a young boy. He needed them to feel protected. But those guns were really a message for me. And even though he hadn't raised a hand to me, my life was already in grave danger every minute of every day. Connor first physically attacked me five days before our wedding. It was 7 a.m. I still had on my nightgown. I was working on my computer trying to finish a freelance writing assignment, and I got frustrated. And Connor used my anger as an excuse to put both of his hands around my neck and to squeeze so tightly that I could not breathe or scream, and he used the chokehold to hit my head repeatedly against the wall. Five days later, the ten bruises on my neck had just faded, and I put on my mother's wedding dress, and I married him. Despite what had happened, I was sure we were going to live happily ever after, because I loved him, and he loved me so much. And he was very, very sorry. He had just been really stressed out by the wedding and by becoming a family with me. It was an isolated incident, and he was never going to hurt me again. It happened twice more on the honeymoon. The first time, I was driving to find a secret beach, and I got lost. And he punched me in the side of my head so hard that the other side of my head repeatedly hit the driver's side window. And then a few days later, driving home from our honeymoon, he got frustrated by traffic and he threw a cold Big Mac in my face. Connor proceeded to beat me once or twice a week for the next two and a half years of our marriage. I was mistaken in thinking that I was unique and alone in this situation. One in three American women experiences domestic violence or stalking at some point in her life and the CDC reports that 15 million children are abused every year. Fifteen million. So actually, I was in very good company. Back to my question. Why did I stay? The answer is easy. I didn't know he was abusing me, even though he held those loaded guns to my head, pushed me downstairs, threatened to kill our dog, pulled the key out of the car ignition as I drove down the highway, poured coffee grinds on my head as I dressed for a job interview. I never once thought of myself as a battered wife. Instead, I was a very strong woman in love with a deeply troubled man, and I was the only person on earth who could help Connor face his demons. The other question everybody asks is, why doesn't she just leave? Why didn't I walk out? I could have left any time. To me, this is the saddest and most painful question that people ask. Because we victims know something you usually don't. It's incredibly dangerous to leave an abuser. Because the final step in the domestic violence pattern is kill her. Over 70% of domestic violence murders happen after the victim has ended the relationship after she's gotten out, because then the abuser has nothing left to lose. Other outcomes include long-term stalking, even after the abuser remarries, denial of financial resources, and manipulation of the family court system to terrify the victim and her children, who are regularly forced by family court judges to spend unsupervised time with the man who beat their mother. And still we ask, Why doesn't she just leave? I was able to leave because of one final sadistic beating that broke through my denial. I realized that the man who I loved so much was going to kill me if I let him. So I broke the silence. I told everyone the police, my neighbors, my friends and family, total strangers. And I'm here today because you all helped me. We tend to stereotype victims as grisly headlines, self-destructive women, damaged goods. The question, why does she stay, is code for some people for it's her fault for staying. As if victims intentionally choose to fall in love with men intent upon destroying us. But since publishing Crazy Love, I have heard hundreds of stories from men and women who also got out, who learned an invaluable life lesson from what happened, and who rebuilt lives, joyous, happy lives, as employees, wives, and mothers, lives completely free of violence, like me. It turns out that I'm actually a very typical domestic violence victim and a typical domestic violence survivor. I remarried a kind and gentle man. We have those three kids. I have that black lab, and I have that minivan. What I will never have again, ever, is a loaded gun held to my head by someone who says that he loves me. Now, right now, maybe you're thinking, wow, this is fascinating. Or, wow, how stupid was she? But this whole time, I've actually been talking about you. I promise you, there are several people listening to me right now who are currently being abused, or who were abused as children, or who are abusers themselves. Abuse could be affecting your daughter, your sister, your best friend right now. I was able to end my own crazy love story by breaking the silence. I'm still breaking the silence today. It's my way of helping other victims. And it's my final request of you. Talk about what you heard here. Abuse thrives only in silence. You have the power to end domestic violence simply by shining a spotlight on it. We victims need everyone. We need every one of you to understand the secrets of domestic violence. Show abuse the light of day by talking about it with your children, your co-workers, your friends and family. Recast survivors as wonderful, lovable people with full futures. Recognize the early signs of violence and conscientiously intervene De-escalate it. Show victims a safe way out. Together, we can make our beds, our dinner tables, and our families the safe and peaceful oasis